0: Okay, so when Josh was posting the um, MP3 files of the last two sermons, he told me that both of them were exactly the same, right down to the second, 39 minutes and 12 seconds. So I thought that'd be a good challenge for today, but that won't be the case. Today's message is going to be a little bit shorter We only have four verses to cover, and they don't require a lot of explanation, but even with just these four verses, we won't want to fly through them too fast, because there really is some good stuff there. So let's start here with with the overall picture. John receives a vision from Christ while on the island of Patmos. We don't know what the situation is that landed him there exactly, but based on what he says In chapter 1, we can assume that it's because he has been sentenced there by Roman authorities. He doesn't appear to be in a prison, but the island itself is known to be a place of confinement. And in his vision, Christ instructs him to write down everything he sees and to send it to the seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. And the account of this vision then becomes what we know of as the book of Revelation. And each of the seven churches are named in chapter 1, and Christ has a specific message for each, and each of those messages, those short sermons, are there in the chapters that follow in 2 and 3. The first stop on the travel circuit, as we see here, is Ephesus. We looked at Christ's message to them last week. And the second stop to the north, also on the coast, is Smyrna. And today we'll go over what Jesus said to them. And hopefully you read through it a few times uh, this past week, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, and have become familiar with what, um, with what Jesus said to them. And this message is quite a bit different than the one given to Ephesus. One big difference is the lack of any kind of rebuke or scolding. Uh, there is no, uh, but I have this against you statement. Christ offers words of praise, but says nothing about anything that they might be falling short in. And the only other church where this is also true is the one in Philadelphia, uh, the sixth church in this list of seven. So last week, we noted that Ephesus was a church of loveless orthodoxy. Smyrna, as we will see, was a church of the persevering persecuted, the suffering church. Christ, however, regards them as spiritually rich, and so they proved to be an exceptional example for all churches then and now to imitate. So we'll begin by reading through it, um, and then we'll go over some of the background material, or some of the background regarding the city of Smyrna itself, and then work through the text uh, verse by verse, and then conclude with some suggestions on how this short sermon might be relevant to us. Uh, uh, You know, the sermon to the Ephesians, as we saw last week, seemed to be quite relevant, at least on certain points, and we'll want to see if that proves to be the case with this one. Okay, so to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Okay, should be a familiar passage. How many were able to read it this week through a few times? Okay, about a third of you. All right. I'll get my cattle prod up here the next time. (laughs) All right, so it is helpful if you kind of read ahead and become familiar with these as we work through them on Sunday morning. So a little bit of background here um, about Smyrna itself. Like Ephesus, it too is on the coast, served as a seaport, part of a major trade route, and it too is a thriving city with lots of tourism. Most of these tourists came to see and or worship in many of the city's beautiful temples. Uh, they were devoted to various Roman and Greek deities. And regarding population, it was about to half the size of Ephesus, which would make it more or less the size of, uh, of Fort Wayne. And though not as prominent as Ephesus, it was, however, much more beautiful. And um, actually, it was probably the most beautiful city in Asia because it was called the Glory of Asia. And this was because of a few things. One was the way that it was positioned in the bay, Um, The view it just had a a great view and it was considered to be quite picturesque and the others because the city itself, um, the layout had just been carefully planned out and with aesthetics in mind. For instance, the streets that were wide and straight from one end to the next, the most famous of these was called the Golden Street. At one end uh, near the sea was the great temple of Sabel, the goddess of nature, the mother of all living things, and at the far end of that same street uh, it, where it ended in the foothills stood another great temple, the one to Zeus, the ruler and protector of all, the god of all deities and of all humans. And lining that golden street from one end to the other were just a number of other, famous, uh, a number of other temples to famous deities. So again, all of this, along with the way that it overlooked the Aegean Sea, made it quite beautiful and fairy tale like, earning it the title The Glory of Asia. Smyrna also possessed a very famous stadium, an equally famous library, and the largest public theater in Asia Minor. And one of its most famous landmarks was a monument to uh, the ancient poet Homer. And Smyrna claimed to be that he was born and raised there. All right, now politically, and this is where the verses in Revelation take on a certain light, the town was extremely loyal to Rome. Uh, In fact, they were into emperor worship before emperor worship ever really became a thing. Emperor worship, which thrived later on in the second and third centuries, began with Domitian, the emperor when the Christians in Smyrna received a copy of John's Revelation. So a little background on how, all, how everything got to that point of emperor worship. Ever since Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome and its greatest emperor, Roman citizens viewed their emperors as like the embodiment of the empire. And upon their deaths, they would be getting, given a status of a god. And temples would be built in their honor all over the empire. People could visit these temples to not only pay their respects, but also to offer up sacrifices to their eternal spirits. And this may seem a bit strange to us, but honoring them as a deity was, to them, simply a noble act of patriotism because, again, the the emperor was the embodiment of the state. And it would be similar to the way that you and I might recite the Pledge of Allegiance or sing the national anthem. Admittedly, the pagans viewed worship differently than Christians. This is an important point. Christians understood worship as much more than just offering up praise and, and expressing devotion. Worship primarily involves the offering up of oneself as a living sacrifice, as we see in Romans 12. The very nature of that surrendering yourself over to another in an absolute and complete way like that means that there can only be one object of that worship, one God. And that concept of worship, exclusive devotion and submission to one, was outside the practice and understanding of the Romans and Greeks who were deeply rooted in polytheism, the worship of many gods. And because they were polytheistic, it was no big deal to them to add just one more god to worship, like the emperor, and they did this again as an act of patriotism. Most residents of Smyrna, because of their love for Rome and cult-like allegiance to it, were one of the first ones to develop this practice of emperor worship, way before it was ever mandated. But patriotism or not, worship of any kind to anything other than the one true god, became a big problem for Christians, and we see that alluded to in this passage. All right, so back to Domitian, the emperor reigning at this time, he was not content to wait until his death to be deified. Um, He was kind of full of himself. He had a lot of strange quirks, and from his throne, he officially declared that he was, while he was still very much alive, to be addressed as Lord and God. And he had statutes of himself built all over the empire along with temples, and he claimed to be a deity. He expected to be honored as one, and he expected to be worshipped as one. And it is unclear whether he actually mandated citizens to worship him, but mandated or not, it would have been a very common practice in Smyrna nonetheless. And it would have been noticeable if people didn't, if anybody didn't, because again, the loyalty there was as thick as could be. The people of Smyrna were grateful to Rome for what uh, Rome had done for them, financial and political stability, law and order, protection from enemies, prosperity, a developed infrastructure with well-built roads in and out of the city, and so much more. And Rome looked upon them with favor and and, um, they uh, granted them special accommodations and privileges and resources and so on. So worshiping the emperor, whoever it might be, was a tangible way to express their gratitude and allegiance. It wasn't that big of a deal to them. But of course, it would have been to the Christians. 200 years before this, is kind of a history here, the people of Smyrna built a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. It was the first city in the world to honor Rome with such a temple. Again, the loyalty and devotion here was just unparalleled. And when it came down to it, Smyrna really kind of is the origin and the heart and the hub of emperor worship then and in the years to come, and thus it would have been very difficult for a Christian to live there. Understanding the cult-like allegiance to Rome and that city helps explain, for instance, why there isn't any reference to persecution in Christ's words to the Ephesians or to some of the other churches. Pergamum seems to be the only other one in this list. And at this particular time, late first century, it was much more of an issue here in Smyrna, given the city's political climate and fanatical devotion to the throne. So long ago, <clears throat> when I was probably in my young 20s, I went on a short mission trip to the Dominican Republic. as my first exposure outside the U.S. And one evening during free time, as I think there were for like two weeks, I went out on a walk and came upon a group of people singing in the town square. And I didn't think anything of it. The song wasn't in English. I didn't know what, they were, what this was all about or anything. I just kept on walking. And when they finished, um, a number of locals charged up to me and um, in Spanish scolded me harshly. And they were quite angry. They were very animated. In fact, I thought they might be getting ready to beat me up. And um, not, again, not knowing Spanish, I had no idea what all the fuss was about. Well, later, I learned that the song was their national anthem, (laughs) and when it is sung, it is expected that everyone stop cold, look at the flag, remove your hat, and show respect, whether you are a citizen or not. I think it used to be that way here in America long ago, but so that scene always stuck with me, you know, it's easy to offend, even when you're really not trying to. And I think that picture would actually describe the situation in Smyrna when it came to showing veneration toward Rome and her emperor. You don't walk by the statue of Domitian without bowing before it or burning incense. You worship him. You pledge your allegiance to him. You thank him for the protection and the prosperity that you enjoy. And you thank him as you would thank a deity. And Christians there, because of their devotion to the one God and only one God, they just simply would not be able to do that. And it would have been very easy to cause offense even when trying not to. Again, Smyrna would be a tough place for a Christian to live. So all this background is kind of helpful in understanding our passage. Now, Jews would have faced the same hardship had it not been for a special exemption that they typically enjoyed throughout the empire, as was the case in Smyrna. There was a substantial population of Jews in the city. They tended to be wealthy, well-organized, and stubborn, and so the authorities didn't think it wise to push them too much on matters concerning worship. The Christians initially um, enjoyed the same exemption, and that's because the authorities thought the Christians were just another sect um, within Judaism. But once they learned that the Jews actually despised the Christians, well, then they became vulnerable. And unlike the Jews, they didn't have any clout. They were not, There just simply wasn't many of them. They weren't wealthy, powerful, and that sort of thing. And we kind of see this in the passage that we just read. In fact, Christians in Smyrna faced opposition from not just the Roman-loving residents, but also from the not-so-Roman-loving Jews. And the passage here touches on that as well. Throughout the New Testament, especially in Acts and in almost all the letters we see that most Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, opposed Christians and made life as difficult for them as they could. And um, one particular act of hostility here in Smyrna, of course, was to rat them out to the authorities. If a Christian walked by the statue of Domitian and didn't stop to burn incense before it or even bow before it, Jews would be eager to turn them in. A little bit more of the history here. We have a perfect example of this and something that happened about 60 years later um, into the, first, into the uh, second century. Here in Smyrna, Jews, Jews went to the authorities and pressured them to arrest the respected and much-loved church leader Polycarp. should be familiar with that name. Uh, The account of his martyrdom, he is the bishop of Smyrna, and the account of his martyrdom is one of the most famous in church history. The governor, at this time, he's not eager to pursue the issue. He's wanting to show mercy. He offered Polycarp a way out. Look, you're an old man. You don't want to burn at the stake. What are you thinking? I mean, just offer up this pinch of incense, acknowledge the emperor as a god, and you can live. It's no big deal. Please, just do that. Well, Polycarp's answer has inspired many who have followed his example into martyrdom, saying, for 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the Jews, they were strong in Smyrna. They had the ear of the authorities. This was true during the time that Polycarp was martyred, and it was true during the time here that we're looking at, um, years earlier when Revelation was written. So in a city where the splendor of pagan worship dominated the lives of its citizens and where cult-like allegiance was expected of its residents to Rome and where Jews looked upon Christians with bitter contempt, eager to see them obliterated, we find a church of faithful followers of Christ. They are weak, they are beaten down, they are poor, they are suffering affliction, but yet they are strong in faith. All right, so with this in mind, let's now take a closer look at the passage itself. Because of the way certain things are connected, the path we take here this morning won't always be um, exactly sequential, but we'll cover everything that is said in, in in this passage. So Jesus begins by identifying himself as the one who is the first and last, this is significant, and as the one who died and came to life again. So first and last, reminds the readers that Christ is Lord over all things, not just over the kings of the earth, but also the Lord over history itself. As Paul wrote, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, all things were created by him and for him. It's kind of the idea here, and in light of this, all earthly followers, all earthly emperors are nothing. Uh, None of them possess the authority that Christ possesses, and none of them warrant the fear and admiration and worship that they demand. That belongs exclusively to Christ. Christ also identifies himself as the one who died and came to life again, an obvious reference to his resurrection. The description seems to be especially fitting in light of the threat of death that the believers in Smyrna are facing. It connects directly to the promise at the end of verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, words that promise their own resurrection in a day yet to come. And so there is this sense here, even expectation, that the believers in Smyrna, at least some of them, may actually face martyrdom. But this is not the death to fear. The death, the death of the body, the first death, does not have the last word. The death with the last word, the one to fear, is the second death, a reference to the final state of those who are damned. If they remain faithful to the end, those in Smyrna, and overcome, the second death will not affect them. They will be spared from it. And so interestingly, what we see here is that the description of Jesus at the beginning connects to the promise of Jesus there at the end. And therefore, these two chapters, therefore, these two charges in chapter 10, do not be afraid and be faithful even to the point of death are both given by Christ because of the promises he makes to them. That's why he can say these things. Yes, you may die, but look beyond that to the crown of life that you will receive one day and be assured that the second death, the ultimate death, the death that is to be feared, it will not touch you. And Whatever suffering a believer may face for the name of Christ, even martyrdom, we need to find courage in the words, do not fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. All right, in verse 9, Jesus assures them that he knows about their afflictions and poverty, but yet in his eyes they are again, they are again blessed and rich. The affliction here refers to that of experiencing oppression because they bear the name of Jesus. We're reminded of Christ's words in Matthew 10, "Everyone will hate you because of me," and Paul's words to Timothy, "Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted." And Peter's words in his first letter: If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. The poverty that Christ speaks of seems to be unique to Smyrna. Nothing is said to the other six churches that suggests any kind of hardship um, financially or economical to them. We could assume that Christians in Smyrna are discriminated against and have a hard time finding gainful employment. We could also assume that their possessions would have been an easy target for thieves, this because the authorities would not have cared if Christians were victims of such crimes. We could also assume that the authorities themselves, as a means of punishment, may have imposed on them heavy fines and or confiscated their goods and property. And along that line, if Christians were imprisoned, as referred to in verse 10, this itself would have resulted in financial hardship. Whatever the case, Christ comforts them with very encouraging words, saying, basically, from my perspective, you are not poor at all, but rich. Take heart. That is how the courts in heaven see you. Now, Christ could say that and mean it because they had something that was worth more than all the gold and riches could buy, could offer. What made them rich was, of course, the glorious inheritance in the kingdom of God, including the crown of life itself. Indeed, a priceless treasure that neither the Romans nor the Jews could ever take from them. All right, and now for um, verse... I have two different references. I have to look here. I think, yeah, the second part of verse 9. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the point here is that the ones slandering the Christians are Jews by race and religion... But they are not true Jews. They are not the chosen people of God that they think they are. Their actions in persecuting the true people of God revealed them to be a synagogue of Satan. They think they are God's covenant people, but God's covenant people would not despise, persecute, or oppress those who follow the Messiah. Instead, they are human agents in the hand of Satan, the ultimate enemy of God's people, and the ultimate source of all slander. And so what was this slander? Well, the text doesn't say here, but it's not hard to speculate what might have been involved. We can assume that it included the general bad-mouthing of Christians whenever they had the opportunity to do that. And in particular, uh, it would include the bringing official charges against them before civil authorities. Uh, We know from church history that there were a number of common accusations Christians were falsely accused of in the earlier years, whether they were brought officially to the um, Roman authorities or just talked about badly in the neighborhoods. But because of the Lord's Supper, they were accused of cannibalism. Because of all the talk of loving brothers and sisters, they were accused of incest. Because of exchanging the holy kiss, they were accused of wild sex orgies. Because they didn't attend the gladiator games and many of the other objectionable public events, they were regarded as anti-social separatists who despised the communities they lived in, and because they worshipped a god that was unseen and had no image to bow in front of, they were accused of being atheists, because a god that can't be seen is no god at all. It doesn't exist. So we can't say for certain if the Jews in Smyrna made any of these particular accusations, but we do know that they Harassed and abused Christians with slander. And um, any of those false charges would have played well into that. In fact, anyone with malicious intent could spend anything to make Christians look bad. It was true then, it's been true ever since, and of course it's true today. All right, verse 10, the only thing left for us to look at is this first half of verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison, to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. I wasn't going to share this, but it just struck me. I remember the first time I was incarcerated, it was 10 days. I always thought that this verse was like prophetic for me. All right. Like many references in chapters 2 and 3, we don't really know what the situation here that's being referred to. We can, however, safely say that pertains to just the believers in Smyrna. Jesus foresees that though things have been rough for them, it's about to get a lot rougher, but it will be brief, intense, yes, but brief. Uh, Ten days may be a reference to ten actual days or figurative for a uh, limited period of time. Now, typically, the Romans did not care for long prison sentences as a means of punishment. Prisons, that were just too expensive, too much trouble to to look after. And so being incarcerated generally meant that you were simply awaiting trial. And if convicted, the punishment would either be a fine and servitude, slavery, if unable to pay that fine, or exile, generally that was reserved for public figures, or death, And so it may be the case that believers here were arrested, that they were indeed threatened with death, Um, some of them may have died, held for 10 days or some limited period of time, and that during that time things got really intense, and then having passed the test, they were then released. We don't really know, seems to be maybe a a likely scenario, but whatever the case, they are um, going into this exhorted by Jesus to not be afraid, And to remain faithful even to the point of death. The the reward that is promised is worth it. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Be patient, endure to the end. Jesus is worth suffering for. Jesus is worth dying for. And though the situation itself is unique to Smyrna, the exhortation here, of course, isn't the charge to not be afraid in the face of suffering for Christ and to be faithful even to the point of death obviously has a wider application, even universal. It is a charge all believers everywhere at all times should embrace wholeheartedly. Agreed? All right, so upon that note, let's now consider how this short sermon to the church at Smyrna might be relevant to us. And a lot of this should be pretty obvious, especially the part about enduring hardship for the name of Christ. Fortunately, we are not facing intense persecution here, nothing like what we see in Iran or China or North Korea and other countries that Josh will report on. Uh, We probably will at some point, who knows, and when that happens, we'll need to encourage each other with the same encouragement that Jesus gave the church in Smyrna. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. You will receive the promised crown of life. Uh, the death to fear is not this one, it's the other one, the second one, the ultimate one. And we will need to remind each other, like Christians today in Iran, China, North Korea, and many other countries, are how they are reminding each other that Jesus is worth suffering for and Jesus is worth dying for. The sad news is Christians are being persecuted in at least 73 different countries today. And the strong push... Toward totalitarianism here in America, where everyone is being forced to think and believe the same or suffer the consequences, grows and becomes stronger by the hour. We see this every time we turn on the news. And there doesn't appear to be anything that's going to stop it. And so we can expect this pressure for Christians to conform to just continue to intensify and accelerate. And we should remember, keep in mind, that for the most part, Christians are not persecuted for their beliefs but for acting on them. It's a very important distinction. When it comes down to it, the world doesn't really care about our teachings, our worship, our church gatherings, or our doctrines. What gets us into trouble is when we live out our beliefs and teachings and worship and doctrines, right? The righteousness Jesus preached and demanded his followers to live out is a righteousness that the world despises, rejects, and hates. And so conflicts are going to be inevitable. And the more depraved the culture is, the greater the conflict, and the harsher the backlash toward those who refuse to go along with its depravity. Even in Smyrna, when you think about it, the issue wasn't any particular Christian doctrine that caused the Romans to go after them. It was simply their refusal to honor Rome and and Rome's emperor with worship. And as is true for them, and for those suffering around the world today, and for us at some point... Again, the righteousness Jesus preached and demanded his followers to live out is a righteousness that is going to be in conflict with the world, and it's going to be unavoidable. And so even now, we need to be preparing ourselves for what probably lies ahead, whether years or decades or longer. And here I'm not talking about stockpiling food and ammunition, but of building up our muscles, so to speak. I've talked about this before. We face situations all the time to take a stand for Christ and his righteousness, and so we should seize those head on, not cower back. If we are compromising now when the cost is relatively low, how can we expect to not compromise, completely cave in, when the cost becomes higher? You know, the whole thing is... Really rather simple. It's not easy, but it really does come down to something quite simple. At the end of the day, suffering comes down to suffering for Christ comes down to a choice. You know, if you don't want to suffer for being a Christian, then don't tell anyone that you are. Don't live out your faith in front of others. Behave like people in the world behave. Don't go to church. Keep everything to yourself. In fact, it's pretty easy to avoid suffering for Christ if you want to. Now, compromising one's loyalty to Christ may spare you of suffering, even save your life, but in the end, of course, it brings something far worse. The one who saves his life at the cost of his convictions lives to die, but the one who is faithful until death dies to live. The threat that the believers in Smyrna faced wasn't that of being killed by the world, but again, that of compromising with it. Thus, Christ's exhortations and words of encouragement and promises of reward, and that is our greatest threat as well, not death, but compromise. Finally, another major way we can prepare for persecution is to be firmly rooted in a solid and healthy local church family, tightly connected to a circle of fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. This caring for and providing for each other within the body of Christ, you know, fills that, you know, That concept that fills the pages of the New Testament um, appears to be God's preferred way of helping each of us in times of need and trouble, and certainly during times of persecution. He intends to love and care for us through each other, and this is what he has designed. And it's nothing less than a mutual sharing among fellow believers of encouragement and counsel and prayer and comfort, and also tangible resources, food, finances, even our basements and extra bedrooms. Being plugged into a healthy church will be essential for enduring the difficulties that lie ahead. And this is what we need all the time, but especially in times of shared suffering. Essentially, we will need to have each other's backs. We will need to cheer each other on, and we will need to hold each other accountable so that no one among us will compromise, cave in, or give up. And the temptation to do so will be great. As in every member ministry, we all serve and are served by each other. And so let's continue to invest in our relationships because the way we get through hardship and persecution, whether mild or intense, whether now or much later, or is by going through it together as a church family. And perhaps we will never face violence or imprisonment or death, maybe. But more than likely, some of our members will face, because of their allegiance to Christ, loss of employment, and at such times, our church family will be called upon to rise up and be to them a church family. Agreed? We need to commit ourselves to that, whatever the cost. So upon that thought, let me conclude with these words from First Peter. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The church in Smyrna was such an example They followed in Christ's steps, and may that be true of us as well. So next week, we have our congregational meeting. We'll have a kind of a short message. We'll have some comments um, related to the life of our church here, followed by a church business, a financial report, followed by lunch together, and um, I have no particular reading assignment. We will pick up next church pergamum uh, in February. So I think, Tim, are you um, ready to dismiss us? All right. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray to the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Amen. You're dismissed.